0: First Peter 3:18 through 4:11. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word.
1: I'm gonna begin by asking what spirit animates you? What is it in you that gives you energy, that helps you make decisions, that is connected to how you're feeling and experiencing things? It's a question that I'm raising because right now it, it, it feels like there's a spirit being unleashed in the world that is affecting us all and it's taking the shape with, um, with signs that it feels like things are getting worse. Um, what spirit is at work in the Russian leadership right now? It doesn't seem that it's God's spirit leading their actions. It seems like it's a spirit of evil. Um, When we think of crime in our own city, you know, it's not that we assume crime is rational, but it makes sense when somebody points a weapon at you and asks you for money. It's terrible, and it's inexcusable, but it's understandable. When somebody pushes somebody off of a train platform, uh, it appears that there's nothing other than a spirit of evil operating. And so we're all being affected with an increase in anxiety, anger, apathy, confusion, a number of things that says that uh, our souls are troubled, our world is troubled. And we've been looking at First Peter now for months, where Peter is writing to say there, there's a new and a living hope and there's a spirit you can live by. But what's important about this book is it's not escapist, it, it's not um, some fictional fantasy that you could read so you're not thinking about your current troubles. But Peter's writing explicitly and saying, you can expect actually there may at times and seasons be an increase in suffering and persecution. But there's something meant to be at work in the lives of those who have joined themselves with Jesus Christ as we're all invited to that calls to to function in a different way. And we're not immune to the feelings and we're not immune to getting caught up in making mistakes but we're told that there's a power that creates an alternate way to say in the midst of a world that even when it unravels, we're called to be faithful and strong and and we can make it through and not be pulled in or destroyed. And so uh, today as we look at this passage where there's another installment of this invitation to live in a different way from what's natural to any of us and what we see as common wherever we live, Um, And and the passage, it's kind of a long reading, and really the ideal would have been to break this section up over several sermons, but for the sake of time uh, in the whole series, we're not going to, but it allows us to see how the pieces fit together. But this passage has actually a number of distinctly hard verses and phrases to understand, and I'm just self-conscious that I won't have the time to explain everything that in my in the start of my sermon prep, I had aspirations of trying to make clear all these troubling things, and uh, I won't be able to explain it all, and so you'll just have to Google uh, what Bible scholars offer solutions for some of these strange verses, but I'm going to stay a little bit more big picture, and the headings this morning are kind of simple, just because if I lose you and, and leave you confused in, with uh, my sermon, that if you find yourself saying, well, what am I to do this week? Maybe you could just recall the, the basic points, which is to move from uh, taking... To giving, but there's an important step in the middle receiving. And so today that's the that's the flow. We go from taking to receiving to giving. Now I'm beginning with taking, because there's supposed to be a shift in our way of thinking. That's chapter four, verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. There's a mind uh, that we are to have. We're supposed to see and understand and interpret differently. We're supposed to respond differently and Jesus is the one who is the model he's the source what is it that's different well there's a number of things that we can highlight but fundamental to the human instinct is uh, to look out for the self and when all is going well we could we could come up with these exchanges where i do for you in a way that's generous and you do for me and there's faith and there's trust and it works But we're still, even the best of our actions, are often rooted in some self-seeking purpose. But what happens is when there's a breakdown, when the benefit is not there, when people start to do things that are problematic, we often double down on that self-instinct, the the taking instinct. And so uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, it says that we should live no longer for the rest of the time in the flesh uh, or that we should live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's part of the, the, the exchange of, of now we have the mind of Christ, we, we understand and seek the will of God. But the contrast of the old way is what's described as these passions of the flesh, these desires, these appetites that motivate us, that they're so strong, that even if we aim to be rational and we say, I know it's right, Oftentimes, we desire to do things that's contrary to that and the desires are more powerful. And so, so in the language of appetite, for example, human beings have physical hunger and so we need to eat and that's good. The interesting thing is um, in order to, to gain life or to sustain life, we need to consume living things. So we eat broccoli and bananas, we don't eat rocks and sand. Um, But what's interesting is is we also extend that out to other living creatures, animals. Now, I'm not here to to promote or make a pitch for vegetarianism, but it is interesting that in order for us to be sustained in life, we consume what was living, uh, taking their life. I'm using this as an analogy for how all of our appetites work. Uh, which is that the various things that we desire what's what 's called here the passions of the flesh, so being passionate is not a problem, having desires are not a problem, but there 's something corrupt in us that we we so strongly want things for ourselves that we seek to to find life in ways that ultimately take life, and so uh, the examples here in the contrary way in, in chapter four, verse three, it says the time is past, so he 's so time is an important thing in this passage. I'm not going to say a lot about that, but uh, but he's saying there's an old way that's passing away and in a new way that's not fully realized, but you're, you're called to be a people of the future and to, to put off the former ways. He says the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So the Gentiles are the nations. They're the people who do not know God. Uh, so it's all of us. And then we are brought into relationship with God. What is the the task Jesus has for the nation, nations, make disciples, baptize them and teach them. You'll see that that's in this passage, baptize them, teach them. Um, so all of us come in, uh, are invited into relationship with God, but as human beings, where we have things we want to do, there's that language there. And, and, and so, so there's, there's two problems, there's what we want to do, and then there's how we gather together with people that agree with what we want to do, and it just makes it hard to live as a contrarian in the world. And so the examples that are given here uh, in chapter 4, verse 3, the time has passed for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It's a sampling. It's not comprehensive. It's not highlighting the worst things, but it is showing what, what our passions are drawn towards. And each of these examples, if you kind of think through theologically, how are we supposed to uh, to function in any of these realms. We're supposed to function with the mind of Christ where we love and we give and we build up. But what we want is to satisfy our appetites and functionally what we do is we consume. So um, sexual activity is in this passage. And, and today, we, you know, we have these various conversations about uh, sex and sexuality, but, but we're having trouble reaching conclusions because we have some very different foundational assumptions on on basic functions, and, and so a popular view is that, that sex is recreational. It's a desire that that I have, that I feel good, and it's an appetite not unlike eating. But the frequency and the variety, uh, some view it should be that simple, as often as you want it and as frequently as you want it. Um, but some of the deeper motives that, that, for instance, the, the Bible has, which is actually, um, Sexuality has the potential to create an increasingly deepening, deepening intimacy, which is why then it's not meant to be, um, to happen randomly, uh, but to, to be part of building a life with somebody that's then potentially fruitful, where, where it's life-giving, it could bring children. Not always, uh, not in every instance, but there's a, there are certain assumptions that people no longer have and share. And then what we're trying to do is we're looking out and saying, but in, in the current model to say, let's liberate it in an order that it's free and it's fun and it's recreational. We're now in this hard situation where there's a tension to say, but it also can be very harmful and damaging. And how do we mediate that? And what's interesting, the current center, which I think given all assumptions is the right center, is the word consent. And I'm not being critical of that, I'm in support of that, but what's, I'm highlighting what is really a legal word. It's a contractual word. It seems like a way of saying that the fundamental arrangement is I want something and you want something and how could we agree together that I get something from you and you get something from me and we find a way to minimize the damage it seems like we're trying to do that Um, but one of the things that comes up is when things go wrong it is damaging it is harmful and so it's a complicated topic and so we can't go into thinking and viewing sexuality strictly in terms of human passions. This is, this is what I crave, and I'm going to construct a thinking around it. Uh, well, what's good for me may not be good for others, and so what is fair and just and good, what actually promotes what's good, that's how we're meant to think, but it requires thinking and not just desire and having our thinking justify our desires. And so a second example here uh, where it talks about drinking parties. Um, so, so the lifestyle in New York, now, I don't know how the world has changed, but but years ago, one of the reasons many people came to New York was because uh, you came, you know, people came from these smaller repressive places where you couldn't be yourself, and, and that included um, uh, sexual desires, but it included all sorts of things. But, uh, but part of social life in New York has always involved drinking, and now it extends out, uh, expands out to drug use, which has a similar function. Um, why is that so normative in our social situations? Well, for any number of reasons, but, but one example is um, intoxication helps us to act on our desires in a way that we might not. It emboldens us to do what we want to do. So here in view is there's what the Gentiles want to do and we often think, well, I don't want to sin, but I just lack restraint. Well, the, the problem with the restraint is we want to do it <laughs> and we just don't have the sufficient willpower. Sometimes uh, the function of alcohol in our society is to give the kind of courage to do what you want to do but you're somewhat afraid, somewhat afraid because your conscience tells you you shouldn't or or because there's other consequences of what could go wrong, rejection, whatever the case. And then socially, the advantage of saying, if I could be in a social circle where other people's judgment are somewhat impaired, (laughs) that will help me pursue what I want in that community. And so that's one function, another function of alcohol. Is because uh, the appetites, just like when you have a full meal and you think I'm never going to eat again, and the next day you want more, um, the temporary temporary fulfillment of seeking what we feel and want means that we're always on the other side, dealing with an emptiness, an ongoing appetite, and then a guilty conscience. And so, one function of alcohol is not to fix your problems, but to help you not feel them. And so, so there's something to say in in the ways that that our habits are there, and, and to be clear. Um, for sex and sexuality, rightly understood. Alcohol itself is not the issue. I'm talking about uh, the, the function of society, what we want, these passions, and how we organize. So on the one hand, what we want is to consume, to take for ourselves, even if it's costly to others, even if the thing that makes me feel like I'm attaining life today is taking life from others. But there's also a, a social convention that it's hard enough to have the restraint to not do everything you feel like doing but when others are encouraging you. So in chapter four, verse four, it says, we respect to this, to this way of life that is just natural when we follow our desires. With respect to this, they, the nations who do this, are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery. Uh, so, So these desires are so strong in us that for many, it feels like they're fundamental reality. It's so, this is so who I am, it's so powerful that there's a surprise that anybody would live differently or think differently. Um, so they're surprised when you do not join them, and they malign you. So there's judgment. There's pressure. It's not simply that those people are different, and we don't understand it, but now we will mock them, we will ridicule them, and the judgment is if you live differently, we will, there will be sanctions, there will be punishment, there will be social consequences. And so anyone who has a moral impulse to say, I want to be a decent person has to deal with the fact, but they also want things that are self-serving and you try to, to do the battle within so you can make the best choices as possible. But society's organized to advantage certain kinds of corrupt choices. And here in one sphere, maybe if we're thinking about the party sphere, but it's in the work sphere, and it's in the arts, and it's everywhere, we're trying to be good, it doesn't seem to work. It's so hard, our own confused desires, our own uh, social pressures. And so, so one of the things that we always deal with is the ongoing sense of judgment. And it it happens within ourselves, the self-condemnation, there's what you want and there's what you think is right, however it's being defined, whatever your moral system is. And the tension between those two leaves many of us with a constant sense of not being good enough. So there's judgment, self-condemnation. And then there's the maligning of society who... Whatever they're doing, if you're not doing what they're doing, at some point there's going to be judgment, hostility. And so now we're afraid that people will reject us, hate us, will punish us. And the interesting thing is the the importance in this passage about judgment. Theologically, we are so in tune with our desires that we only have the capacity to assume that people are like us or that God must be like us. And so one of the reasons the Bible warns us about idolatry is because As we live by human passions, whatever we create in our conception of God is likely to be wrong. The way forward is not to think that God is like us, but to find out what God is actually like and to be changed from that direction. And then the topic of judgment changes because if God is both just and merciful, it's very good that God is also the one who will judge. Verse 5 of chapter 4, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And there's a number of implications here. One is more important than your (laughs) self-condemnation. It's not what you think about what you've done. But how does God think? And if God is just and merciful, if God is good, that actually is freeing. There's a more important evaluation of who you are and how you live than your own. Um, Also in regards to what people think. If people dislike you, if they judge you, if they disapprove of you, there's a freedom to say, but... Ultimately, I give an account to Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. And their judgment is not final and it's not authoritative. And there's a freedom to say I could live differently in this world because it doesn't matter if people think differently or punish me. And ultimately, there's a confidence of justice to say while people go on doing what is so harmful and destructive to say at the end of the day, God is merciful and he offers a way out, but he is just. He will deal with it. And therefore, while we're suffering with the the angst, and the lament and the difficulty of what we're seeing to, to patiently know that Jesus in his thorough goodness, his mercy and his justice will one day make things right. It helps us to keep going. It helps us to be different in the world. And that's what we're called. One of the differences is not to keep going on and taking whatever you can because you want it and you desperately need it. Because that's, that's what we're all doing and it's not working. But we're called to a different way. And so now I wanna talk to the, the shift to receiving. So this is the second heading. Before we get to, to go from taking to giving, which actually works, I mean, the simple discipline, if you say, you know what, I'm just gonna make a, a, a commitment of the will to say rather than always taking, I'm gonna try to be generous in every situation. You're gonna find that that, that improves your life. Um, but in this world, when things get particularly hard, it's hard to sustain that. There's an important middle step here which is receiving. Um, and, and here is where I'm going to get into the Noah analogy from chapter 3. And here's where <laughs> there are all sorts of things here that are said that either I don't understand or I don't have the time to explain. But the, the basic analogy is clear and helpful. So let's stay with the big picture. I'll see if I, as I manage the time, if I can try to bring clarity to, to a number of things. Uh, the imitation of Christ, to have the mind of Christ in chapter 4 is continuing the end of chapter 3. Here's what Jesus did, and here's, here's how he lived differently, and here's how we're to live differently. Um, but focusing on what he did is really important, and so, so there's an analogy with what, what happened in the days of Noah. If you're not familiar with the story, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6 begins that story. You can read it, but in chapter 3 of, of our reading today, verse 19 to 20, it talks about Jesus says, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And so, so one aspect of the Noah story that is influencing our story is this concept of time. He's saying the time has passed for what the Gentiles are doing. The end of all things is at hand. That's chapter 4, verse 7. Um, but what's interesting in the Noah story in Genesis 6 Uh, Early on in the narrative, I'm now forgetting the verse number. I've got 10 in my mind, but I don't think that that's right. It says there's an increase in violence, and it says God looks down with displeasure. He hates what he sees. So does God approve of what's happening? No. Is God going to stop it? Yes. But how should God do it? Well, God could immediately destroy everything. That would bring an immediate end to it. But God's purposes in making things in order to bring things to life and goodness would be ended by that. So on the one hand, God is going to deal with the increasing violence and hostility and what was happening in the days of Noah. But he's going to deal with it in a way that doesn't stop the plan that he had since the beginning. And therefore, he makes a way forward by giving the instructions to build this ark and having Noah and his family and the various animals that go in so there could be a new creation, a new chance. Um, But one aspect of this plan, I think if we were God's advisors, we would say, destroy everything. And if God said, but I want to have things continue. Okay, how do you do it with an ark? Well, then drop an ark from heaven. And kind of like these movies where the getaway car is outside the bank, so when the guy runs out, he's there, and you just pull off. Uh, That's kind of what we want. Just drop the ark, let's get in, let's get out of here. And yet the ark is being built. And so it takes time, I imagine, without Home Depot in your neighborhood, to build this ark. And so as it's being built, two things are happening. One is the violence is continuing, but also a sign of of the end of that and the possibility of an alternative is there in the time of the building of the Ark. And one thing that's interesting, when Peter wrote by his time in the first century, there were other writings about Noah that was really shaping how people were interpreting the Genesis story. And Noah had become known as a preacher of righteousness. You don't really see it in the Genesis passage. He's righteous, he's building the ark, and certainly the building of that ark is a sign. But many believe that he went around and tried to persuade people during the time, stop what you're doing. Don't you understand what's gonna happen? And so that would be in the mindset of Peter's audience. And so Peter writes, uh, in, they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Um, did God hate what was happening? Yes. God is just. He doesn't approve. Does God able? Does he have the power to deal with it? He does. But for some reason, he works in real time, which means that as he's creating the possibility for people to stop and turn, the reality is also that the terrible things are still happening, which in the end proves to vindicate God who offered a way forward and how stubborn we are. But that call for patience is a call that we all need right now. I want things to end immediately with this Russian invasion. God is not pleased with it, and I don't know what God is doing, uh, but there's a call to continue to invite people to repent and that grace is being extended to every party and every one of us. It's hard to grasp and hard to understand, uh, but somehow that's part of this story. But let me go further um, because one of the confusing things here, and this is one of the, one of the interpretive difficulties in this passage, what does it mean that that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison in the days of Noah. This is one of the confusing interpretive things. One thought, one interpretation that you may have heard or you may hold to, and it's a fair interpretation, only looking at this passage, maybe a couple of data points, is that between Jesus' death and resurrection, he descended to Hades or he went to the underworld and he had an evangelistic campaign. He went to preach to the spirits, people in the days of Noah and perhaps people at other times. And that certainly makes sense given this passage. I think there are a number of reasons biblically why I don't think that's the right interpretation, but Christians hold that. Another is that uh, the spirits that are in prison are are maybe in the present. Spirits that were alive, that's actually part of the Noah story, uh, who are these Nephilim, and and how do we understand that? That there are these principalities and powers that are still existing but now imprisoned and under judgment. Where By the end of chapter 3, it talks about Jesus, who. has authority and rule over the spirits and the principalities. So some would say, that's what's in view. Fair enough, that's possible. What I think is happening is that Peter is assuming the same prophetic spirit that has been at work uh, from the days of Adam till the days of today, that God speaks to his people, and he speaks to his people um, in a way that points to his redemptive work. And so just if we stay within 1 Peter, a passage that we looked at months ago in chapter 1, verse 10 to 11, speaking about Jesus coming and fulfilling all things and and this new hope that we have. He says, the prophets searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So Peter is already describing this prophetic spirit prior to this generation as the spirit of Christ. So it's that Holy Spirit that was in Moses, the Spirit of Christ that that led him to announce things that anticipate the coming gospel that was at work in Isaiah and that Peter assumes was at work in Noah. So what I think is happening is just simply if Noah was a preacher of righteousness, it wasn't because of his own um, will or his own ideas, but it was because of this Spirit of Christ in him, calling him to a different way and through him calling others to a different way whatever take you have on what was actually happening. Clearly, all the views say that there was a warning, there was violence, people didn't listen, there was destruction that came via a flood, but there was salvation that came via the ark. And that, I think, is the clearer analogy that's made. Not what are all the details of how did this work in, in mysterious ways, but, but what's the connection between the ark and, and the anticipation of the redemptive work of God that would be fulfilled through Christ? So, in chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Christ suffered once for sins. And so there's a sense in which the spirit of Christ always announcing repentance, always offering some way of turning, whether it's through a sacrifice in the tabernacle or the temple, there's something that's to remind us that we need forgiveness, we need God's grace, God is holy and separate, and we need reconciliation. That's always there. Christ suffered once. So there is this definitive moment anticipated throughout the years in real time, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And that's that contrast. There's us in the passions of the flesh. Now there's Jesus who died and his being made alive in the spirit, and now we who are called to live in the spirit. But that word, that phrase, that he might bring us to God, I think is important in understanding the allusion to Noah in this, because in verse 20, it says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So here's what happened. God sees what is happening. He's calling people to change. They're not. And so the judgment will come to bring an end so that the the evil and the violence don't continue. But he offers a way, and the way is through the ark. So Noah and his family and and, uh, representatives of creation enter. And therefore, when the judgment comes, because they are in the ark... They are brought through. So when the floods subside, they're part of that new creation. Jesus suffered to bring us to God. He's saying, look, um, there is accountability for each of us as individuals for our society. God is not pleased with all of the corrupt things we are doing. And one day he will put an end to it. But The patience of God is today he makes possible a way that we could be brought through what we will face. In the way is Jesus Christ who suffered once for sins. The analogy here is to to come into Christ To join your life with him in the same way that if Noah entered the ark He was saved if he built the ark and didn't go in he wouldn't be saved if others turned and went in They would be saved the invitation of Jesus who says follow me join with me Let's walk together is that uh, he will bring us through and when we face judgment of God who is just and holy, it will not be a humiliating devastation and destruction because we won't stand alone to account for me and my participation in the world. But if we stand in Christ, we will be brought through. Why? And this is the difference between God and us. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There is one righteous, that's Christ. There are lots of unrighteous. That's the rest of us. Jesus in our place, the righteous faces the judgment, the cross, uh, the false charges, the humiliation, the scorn, the pain, the weight of judgment. The righteous suffered that so that the unrighteous can be brought to God. Our shield, our defender, our protector who says, come to me and join your life with me. What we're told is now We will face a reckoning god will deal with the evil but he will offer a way today that we won't be destroyed by it and the way is through the one who offered himself once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous so that he would bring us to god so there's a new paradigm chapter 4 verse 6 though judged in the flesh the way people are they might live in the spirit the way god does another Interpretive difficulty, how are people judged in the flesh? Here's my short answer, but it's a complicated one if you do the research. It seemed that people in Peter's days might have worried, look, there are people who believe the gospel and then died. Isn't death a judgment? Did we think we would stay alive until Christ's appearing? Well, no, everyone's going to face death. But here's the thing, we will be judged in the flesh the way people are, which means unless we're alive when Christ returns, we will face death. But even now we will live in the spirit the way God does. Um, Jesus himself was judged in the flesh the way people are, the righteous for the unrighteous. We are told now, even though we live with our ongoing desires, to not be ruled by them but to live by the Spirit. And the distinction here is not that, um, that Christianity is an escape from the material world, But it's while we are in the body, Um, it's while we're in the body, we no longer live for the passions of the flesh, but for the will of God. Because having been judged in the flesh as we stand with Christ, who died the death we should have died, we now are able to live in the spirit by this new and living way open to us through Christ that Peter describes as a new birth, a new reality that is beginning And we live in the overlap of the ages, the old that's passing away and the new that is not yet here to say the time has passed for the old. Don't continue to get um, invested in that. But there's a new way, not that you'd be takers and you're not yet givers. You need to be receivers, receivers of God's varied grace. And so um, in verses 21 to 22 of chapter 3, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. So he's saying it's not the outward sign of of what baptism does to the body of cleaning you. It's not the religious ritual that if you do this thing, it will earn you a certain kind of credit or reward. It's Christ is the one that will bring you through. And he went into death. And he was raised and is now seated at the right hand of God. He's the one who passes through judgment to the other side. And if you're in him, then your baptism corresponds to this because baptism is a sign of our joining with Christ. It's an outward sign of that inward spiritual reality that through the pouring out of water, the water doesn't drown his people. But now it's like a pouring out of the spirit that makes them alive. And so that same sign that brought death and judgment now brings cleanliness and life. Baptism corresponds to a reality to say, if you were in Christ, the righteous suffered for the unrighteous. He passed through death. He was raised and now ascended into the heavenly places. He will bring you to God. Baptism is the sign that the church community sees every time somebody responds to joining with Christ and his people. And so we receive from him. And what we've received is meant to change us. And so here's the last thing that I want to talk about is that shift from being people who take to people who receive from God in order that we live a new way of life, not by the passions of the flesh, but by the will of God, not by the way of death, but by the way of the Spirit. And so we are to be a people who are giving. So chapter 4, verse 1, armed with a new way of thinking, there's a new way of understanding things. You understand the grace of God who's just and merciful. Do you understand that walking with Christ and being reconciled in fellowship to God creates a new future and a new possibility? Well, arm yourself with a new way of thinking. Yes, there are times where it's spontaneous, it's fun, just being a generous person, a kind person, those things have their own reward. But this world sometimes has persecution and suffering and rejection. So you need to arm yourself with a new way of thinking. The world has certain weapons it uses, the church has different weapons. We have the mind of Christ uh, to renounce the way of taking at the expense of others, but in the way, following the way of being willing to face death if it is life-bringing. And so, uh, in this time thing, chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things are at hand, and so now think differently. Think as a people of the future rather than a people of the past. Humanity, since we've existed, have lived a certain way, and it hasn't worked. But there's a new reality that we don't yet see, and so sit your minds there... And in the present, live that way, even if it's contrary to the incentives and even your own desires. And so I'm I'm going to quickly go through, um, there's so much wonderful stuff in this passage, take the time to study it this week, Uh, but chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, what are some of the marks of the new community? Well, one is prayer. In chapter 4, in verse 7, prayer is important. What is prayer? Prayer is relational. And this is not the only thing to be said about prayer, but in prayer, we are walking with God. That's how Noah was described. What is it that, that distinguished Noah in Genesis 6? It's not simply that he wasn't violent, but he walked with God. Prayer is walking with God. We, we speak about what we see and hear. We, we listen for what God is saying. And so what is the reason to live an upright life? And, and what I've been trying to highlight in this second point is that it's our union with Christ. It's We were alienated from God, but being brought back to him that changes things. So when we think of judgment, we don't think of being judged as individuals, me for what I've done, but now we stand with Christ. But that's how we live. And so in prayer, we walk with God. And so when the desire tempts us to do something that our minds tell us we shouldn't do or that we know is contrary to the will of God, what is the incentive not to do it? Well, we always think in terms of the short term, will I be judged and punished for this or will God forgive me? But if the new way is to walk with God, to think there's something that I desire to do that I would have to step away from God in order to do, because God wouldn't go there. Because God's upright wouldn't go with me to do something harmful to somebody else. And so therefore, if I'm gonna stay in communication from God rather than walking away, the incentive, the bigger picture, is the thing that I want now is life with the life-giving God. Not that I'm afraid if I do a bad thing that God will punish me, but if I walk away from God, Um, I will lose communication, I'll get confused, I won't know what God is doing, and therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Not because God needs to be pleased with you, not because you'll earn anything, because if you're not self-controlled and sober-minded, you're gonna wander off, and you're gonna have no idea where God is and what his will is. And so the short-term thing is, here's something that would satisfy me. The long-term thing is, I know God will satisfy me, so let me be patient and stay with him in prayer. And what is another mark, verse 8? Earnest love. Not the, not the echoes of love that we find that are natural to us, but that earnest, godly love that's meant to be deep in us, this keeps coming up in First Peter. Um, there is, above all, verse 8 says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What is it that gives us confidence that God actually accepts us despite all the wrong that we've done? It's because God's love is earnest and profound. The change is to go from being self-seeking people to, to knowing the love of God and how we receive it, to having that be our new way of being, which means that we love not simply those we like and benefit us, but we love real people with their flaws, which is why the church is not the people who who have that self-control and discipline so that we create a perfect society that, that people come into, but There's the open invitation for all of us imperfect people to come. And what that means is earnest love must be at work in the life of the church or we're going to go the way of every human society. We're going to turn against one another. The multitude of sins happens in the body of Christ. We don't accept that as good. We don't ignore it and we don't encourage it. But what we do is we seek through the love of God to bring real change and that doesn't tell us in every situation what to do, but it sets the boundaries of when to exclude or when to bring judgment uh, is the earnest love, not our own impatience, not our own self-seeking desires. Hospitality in verse 9, uh, this is just the way of Christianity. We, we welcome people. But there again, the realism, hospitality without grumbling. You want to do it. You want to welcome people. You want to be kind and generous, but sometimes you don't because you're tired sometimes you want to do it but the people you're showing hospitality to are not grateful or they have poor manners or it's not equal they're taking one and they're not giving that's not okay there are ways that we need to deal with it but the way is not grumbling and the way is not to stop showing hospitality but it's through earnest love that we show ourselves to be a different community that welcomes people that shares and serves Um, verse 10 these gifts that we have these gifts of god's varied grace Again, we think individually. So with a church community, is there anything that they have that I need? A lot of people say they don't. I've got me, and I've got my beliefs. Um, But the picture is, other people have been given gifts by God that you need, and so therefore you need to invest in a Christian community. You need to be part of it, because there are things, there were times that you will need things that others have, and God will provide them. And it's not superficial to have that be compelling to say, you know, I'm going to go consistently to my home group, even if I'm tired, even if I don't yet know everyone and like everyone, I'm going to go consistently trusting that these people have things that I either need now or will need in some way. But if we want to be even more altruistic, <laughs> what gift has God given you that others need that they don't have? Part of the incentive of a church community is, is the wisdom to know that I will need the resources of this community in some way. But to show up to say, but, but I have something to give. And if I'm not giving it, I'm not going to thrive and God's church will be lacking something. And so it's a new way of thinking, of going from what can I take in this world to God has given me all things, including gifts. Not so people would admire me, not so that I would have advantage, but so that I could walk in this new life. And so here's the last two things I'm going to say about um, encouragement to how to do it, because it's not easy. You're going to go out into the world this week. I hope you're going to try to incorporate everything you're hearing, but you're going to be tired and you're going to grumble and you're going to have desires that you shouldn't have, but but they're strong. Um, One is we need that new, deeper will. So chapter 4, verse 2, live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So again, it's not a spiritual escape. Jesus was resurrected. (laughs) You still live in the flesh. It's not that your bodied existence is the issue, it's these corrupt desires. Now you live in your bodies no longer for those corrupt desires, but for the will of God. And it's having that conviction of the goodness of God to say, if I stay with him, if I join with him, I have a new desire. A new desire is to know God, to walk with him, to experiment in finding his ways, are they life-giving? And it's that will, it's a new will that helps you overcome the ordinary will that is at uh, in the moment, the craving that says right now the thing I want most is this thing that I feel like I shouldn't do. You have to go deeper and say, but I desire something greater. I want the will of God. Because at the end of the days, that's the hope for the whole of my life. And so I have to handle this immediate desire with that new desire that I have, which is if I understand God's earnest love and his grace, I want to stay in that. So with that as my new fundamental desire, How do I make choices in the present? It's not always easy. It doesn't always work. But you need new desires, renewed desires. And as you mature, it does get easier until new problems come. Uh, But then chapter 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. People want glory. We, we want to be part of something great. We want to be admired. We want to be excited. That desire is not wrong. It's the corruption that says, I'm going to consume others in order that I would get it for myself. And now we realize, I'm not going to get it from you, and you're not going to get it from me. But if I'm connected to God, the more glorified he is, the more I share in the excitement and the joy and the strength and the encouragement so the new will to know this God of justice and grace, the new will to walk with Him who came to be with us, the new will to be brought through this corrupt world and make it out on the other side and to be restored and have a share in the new things, is a desire for glory, is a desire to say, while I live in the flesh, I will live by the Spirit for the will of God because I want glory and I've just learned what we're seeing as glorious as not. <laughs> I've learned that there's regret, that there's harm, that there's shame, there's humiliation, I've learned a new way and the way is to follow Christ have his mind. And the more that I'm showing the reality of who he is in me, the more he's being glorified, the more I'm experiencing true glory, real fruit. And so Jesus in John says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If If anyone remains in me, he will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. That's the image. Join your life with me and my life will be in you so that you'll bear fruit. And we want fruitful lives, but keep in mind, New York is not a very agricultural place. We know the, the farmer's market, uh, but I don't know much about what the farmer does. But there with the vine, you have seasons that it bears grapes, and the grapes are taken and used to be eaten and put in salads, and you make wine, whatever you do with them, and, and so then the vine has no grapes. But if the life is in the vine, it will bear fruit again. And what we're told is join your life with Christ and his spirit in you will bring about a fruitfulness. You'll, you'll start to experience the fruits of the spirit and, and your life will take a new direction. But we'll say, but there are times when there's nothing. <laughs> I was seeing some fruit and it's all been taken. People have taken it and they've eaten it. And now I feel dead. Well, you look dead. You will look without fruit. But if you're a branch in the vine, just wait, there will be more fruit. And so we're called to be patient, to go through seasons where where everything that we want to give has been taken, and we don't want to give anymore, uh, or we feel guilty that we can't give anymore. Right now, we're all weary, we're all tired, we're still called to live this way, to be earnest in love, uh, to show hospitality, to offer our gifts. But if you're tired, if you're weary, if you feel like everything's been stripped and you feel like you're dead, what we're told is, but if you're in Christ, He will bring you to God, You'll, you'll get through this period, But if his life is in you, there will be another season of fruitfulness. And so don't be discouraged. Don't feel like my life is empty and I now need to fill it with whatever will satisfy me. The life of Christ will be satisfying. But there are times when it won't seem that way. But we're told is is don't go back to the former way. Don't start to think I need to look out for number one. Look out for the glory of God. Live by the Spirit. Seek to do his will. And trust that in the end of the day's they will be rejoicing that you made that choice. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we come to you as a community here who needs that life. All of us uh, have done things we regret. All of us today have desires that we see are not going to do anything for us and will bring harm to ourselves and to others. Lord, we, we long for a different way. We long for a day when nations don't invade nations, when Uh, Women don't need to take up arms in other nations as they walk their kids to school, uh, where people are not assaulting one another. We we not only want to be protected from it, but we, we don't want to participate in that. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the righteous one, who was willing to suffer death to bring us life, and we pray that we would receive something of that grace so it would make us more just, more discerning of your will so that we would do it but also more gracious that the love of Christ would bring us alive so that there would be fruit. Would we pray that as a church we would do these things? We would be a people of prayer, a people of hospitality, a people of stewarding your very gifts. And We pray this for our sakes because we desperately need it, but, Lord, as we desire to do your will and see your glory, we want our neighbors to see a better way and to have an invitation to a better place. Lord, it's not us. It's not our church. It's your presence with us. So, Lord, remain with us. Be at work in an active and living way to renew our hearts and minds for our sakes, for our strengthening, for our neighbors. And we pray this for the church and the world. Uh, Strengthen us all so that we would show a better way in a world that really needs it. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen.